and welcome to Minute 68 of Movie Around Minute, the daily podcast, where we take a wild trip to the 1987 John Hughes comedy, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, one minute at a time. I'm Rob, and joining me once again today is Duncan Shields. Oh, What? Yeah, okay, there you go. Poet and a whole bunch of other things. <laughs> I, you just want to talk. I know, I can hear it. I can hear it. You're, 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 you must be sitting in the hot seat. Are you in the hot seat? I'm in the hot seat. I'm in the hot seat. <laughs> All right, so we have Duncan Shields with us, who is also the co-host of the Time Bandits Minute and the host of Chronologically Speaking, and an artist, a poet, an author, an animator, and so on and so forth, et cetera, et cetera. Sir Duncan, welcome. Oh, <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, and uh, I am also a Canadian, much like John Kennedy. There you go. There you go. Which uh, I did want to start, if I can, to talk about a little something. About you you want to wait till Friday when we, we, we're going to be doing your top five of John Candy, or you want to do it today? Heck yes. All right, see, there, there you go. It's a teaser, it. so people have to come back to listen to Duncan's story about John Candy on Friday. Let, let's hope you actually make there it to go. the end of the week. You know, Because <laughs> if not, yeah. we're all going to miss it. I'm going to miss it too. So hold that, hold that thought. Mark, mark down, make an asterisk and mark that spot, and uh, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. We'll get to it in, in another two days. So nice. minute sixty-eight begins with Dell uh, having a complaint, and ends with Neil making an offer. <laughs> so yesterday, the the, the smoldering uh, farm and country. Uh, Detroit, uh, what, what, what do we call it? A Detroit farm and country town, our Canyon Arrow. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah, the Gran Torino aspect in there. The, what a bizarre Canyon Arrow. Detroit Grand. It's not a real car. It's not a real car. They, it, I, I, I actually discussed this a few weeks ago that, that there's, I found a debates, I found debates online where people are discussing, you know, what, Different cars, this car is an amalgam of. <laughs> well, it says, yeah, 1986 Chrysler LeBaron Town and Country Convertible Grand Detroit Farm and Country Turbo. <laughs> like, there you go. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Oh, there it might not be a LeBaron. might not be a LeBaron. But, uh, no, it's, oh, it's based for a on second, a LeBaron. They show the, the owner's manual in one it's seat. based. It's based. No, they show the owner's manual, and we see just that it says 1987. That's all we see on it. Ah, uh, I see. Yeah, we we don't get to read inside of it, right? So Dell yesterday started by or ended the minute by saying to to Neil, you know, you could have killed me, slugging me in the gut. And then he says, when I and he continues his his little speech here, he says, you know, you could have killed me, slugging me in the gut when I wasn't ready. That's how Houdini died, you know. Now, I know who Houdini is. I'm assuming you do yeah. too. Do you know who Houdini was? I do. You do. All right. Well, I have a little bit of information about Houdini. So Har Harry Houdini. Do you, do you know what his real name was? Oh, uh, oh man, I did. Um, uh, oh, I don't know. I so his, what was it? His name was Eric Weiss. Eric Weiss. Yeah. Okay, cool. Born March twenty fourth, eighteen seventy four, and passed away. On October 31st, 1926. So he was a Hungarian American escape artist, illusionist, and stunt performer. Uh, most people know him for the fact that he had all these different type of escape acts that he would yeah. use. His pseudonym of Houdini actually referenced his spiritual mentor, 
the French magician Robert Houdin, who died in uh, oh. 1871, which it's very interesting because he died four years before he was even born. Houdin died four huh. years before uh, Weiss was born. So I guess he was able to get information. He he looked it up on Wikipedia, you know, when he was old enough, <laughs> you know, back in the 1800s. Yeah, back then. <laughs> yeah. Must have gone back to like, I don't know, movie posters in the library. Or I don't something. know. I mean, they didn't even have, they mean, didn't sorry, even have movie, movie posters, posters back then. <laughs> Event event yeah. posters. Apparently, maybe, yeah, apparently. Maybe somebody wrote a. Maybe he wrote an autobiography. Who or knows? Something. I, that's interesting to to wonder about. So he was mostly known for being able to get out of straitjackets, uh, underwater, in milk cans. You know, they they found all these different things that he could be able to get out of, and stuff like that. He was also the president of the Society of American Magicians, and he would go around debunking other people's uh, magic from fraudulent artists you know people who were claiming to, to do oh. that and he also would sue anyone who would try to copy any of his his stunts you know he he didn't sound like the nicest guy based on these type of things but you know he was did also an actor uh, did you look he was up also an actor up? he was in uh if you look no he was he was Sorry. in a number of movies but since he didn't make enough money from them he quit and he also uh loved to to fly he was an aviator and he wanted to become the first man to, to fly an aircraft uh, to Australia. But I, I oh. don't think he actually ma managed to do that. What was your question? Uh, did you see, have you seen pictures of um, Jean Eugene Robert Houdin? No. Uh, he's a very imperious right. looking dude. So I can I can dig that he was someone not to be uh, trifled with, and yeah, he was a magician and an illusionist and an inventor and an author, but he was also Ooh. a clockmaker. So that's uh, that's this guy's that's uh, Houdini's inspiration here. So he yeah. was an author, and uh, he had a little theater. He had a theater in Paris. He was he entertained the wealthy. You know, he was a very much. Um, yeah, he, he transformed magic from a pastime for the lower classes seen at fairs to an entertainment for the wealthy, which he offered in a theater opened in uh, Paris. So, And that's preserved by the tradition of modern magicians wow. to perform in tales, yeah. right? He's, he's the, the, fancy, the fancy pants magician. Mm, that's kind of what he originated. Okay. So uh, now, yeah. basically, Dell mentioned the fact that, that that's how Houdini died. So Houdini... One of the things that he would go around telling people was is that that he was able to make his stomach uh, hard as steel, and anyone can punch him, and they won't be able to do any damage to him. Okay, so what happened was is that yeah. he was he was he had he had hurt his foot, and he was lying on a couch, and two two uh, two people came in and said they wanted to you know. They wanted to give him a little bit, a few punches to show that, that uh, they can actually hurt him. And because he wasn't ready for it and wasn't able to prepare his stomach properly for it. So he basically had, he got a ruptured appendix from it. You know, he, he died of uh, uh, peritonitis yeah. secondary to a ruptured appendix. Well, appendix. Now what's even more amazing is, is that this happened, he died three days after this event happened okay he was he was in montreal and that's where he got punched yeah 
And then a few days later, he was in Detroit, my hometown, doing a uh, uh, doing a show there. And he actually collapsed in the middle of the show because he he had a hundred and four fever. Which uh, yeah, and uh, they took him to the hospital, and it was, it was too late. And he 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 died from that. Now, what's very interesting is is that they did a very large uh, amount of research after he died because of all the insurance policies that he had. And they actually, based on their findings, they actually paid double indemnity. Indemnity. Okay, now, do you know what double indemnity is? Besides the movie with Fred oh, McMurray? Yes. Uh, I thought double indemnity... I always get it confused with double jeopardy. Right. Double jeopardy means that you, you can't be uh, tried for the same crime twice. So double indemnity is a clause in life insurance or accident policies where the company agrees to pay the stated multiple, double, triple, whatever, of the face amount of the contract in cases of death caused by accident. This includes murder by a person other right. than and not in collusion with the beneficiary of the insurance policy and most accidental deaths. It include it excludes uh, suicide and deaths caused by the insured person's own gross negligence as well as natural causes. Okay. So in the movie, Double Indemnity, right. the idea is, is that Fred McMurray is an insurance agent's agent and he pretends to, to change the clause of his girlfriend's husband's insurance policy so that they can kill him in an accidental way and then get double the amount of money. Yeah. That's what the movie's all about. Okay. In right. 2006. Yes. Good movie, by the way. I know that uh, Edward G. Robinson took the role uh, uh, and didn't get paid very much for it, but he was really into not being cast yes. as a villain. He, he was actually great as the hero in the movie he's, where he's whole... trying to, he's the insurance yeah. investigator trying to find out what really happened. Yeah. Because at that point he was already being widely caricatured and yeah, see, yeah. And uh, yes. that, whole, that whole stuff was already being sort of cast as mob boss after mob boss after mob boss because he was so good at it. But he uh, leapt at the chance to play right. this uh, this one. To play a bit of a heroic role for for a change, she's <laughs> such a good actor. I saw him in a good movie called uh, "The Night Has a Thousand Eyes," which also has oh, wow. that song in it, where he plays a psychic, and it's um, about how troubling it is to be a psychic because he gets these flashes of the future that don't make sense until they're happening, and by then it's kind of yeah, too. Then he needs to figure it out, right? Yeah, so it's a, a really good, pretty wow. good, pretty good little movie. Anyway, this no, is not the it doesn't matter. I, I love going off on tangents. That, that, that's what we're here for, you know. Yeah, he's got this. Well, there's this one scene where he's like, "It said on the radio that there was an escaped lion. Um, there was a broken pitcher lying on the floor, and somebody said there are pterodactyls <laughs> in the room. I don't know how any of this makes sense." And then they're all in a room later and someone in the house has been killed and uh, somebody like they hear glass crunching underfoot and they look down and there's been a, a pitcher was on the ground, but it was underneath a napkin. So the person didn't see it. So he accidentally stepped on it and broke the pitcher. And he's like, oh, geez, that's the broken pitcher on the floor. And then they turn on the, the radio and there is a news 
article there's a there's a newscaster saying a, a lion has escaped from the zoo tonight he's like oh, so two of the three things have come true and then this one guy says well at least no one said the pterodactyls are in the room <laughs> and then they all turn to look at him like you idiot and then he's like oh my god yes I just said it. I'm the guy. That's what you, oh no. So it's this sort of causality loop where because he told them it would well, happen, they ended up saying it, but that's, uh, it was a great, it was a great, well, whatever. What'll really bake you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. So back, back yeah. to, back to the idea of double indemnity. So in, in 2006, what percentage of deaths in the U S were, were declared accidental? What would you say? I go 28%. Okay. Well, the answer is actually 5%. Okay. Five. Five percent in 2006. I, I wasn't able to, to get information for something more recent. And basically it says here, for this reason, double indemnity clauses, clauses are usually relatively inexpensive and often aggressively marketed, especially the people over 45. People who have dangerous jobs, such as people who are in heavy construction and also children, are never generally eligible for multiple indemnity co coverage. <laughs> Yeah, no doubt. I'm an Alaskan crab fisherman, and I would like to get double indemnity <laughs> coverage. Sir, you are denied. Yes. <laughs> Sir, you are denied. I don't think so. So, yeah. So, yeah. That, that's what we got about, about Houdini. So, Neil looks over at Dell after he says this with a pretty unsympathetic and unwavering look. He's still pretty pissed off at him. Okay. And we see that Neil is holding the steering wheel with the tips of, tip of his fingers because we see the smoke still rising from numerous parts of the car, including the steering wheel. So it must still be very, very hot. And then we see Neil in, disengage his fingers from the steering wheel <laughs> where they were actually stuck. And we hear the actual popping sounds of him pulling his the, fingers the, off of it. The, rip, the ripping of flesh, like he's crazy glued his hands to the steering wheel. He does little light rips as he takes them fingertip by fingertip exactly. off, the, off the steering It's such a great, great piece and then, of work. Because I, I, imagine, I imagine it's entirely yeah. mine. Uh, but it's uh, with the sound effects, it's very yeah. And then he opens the door very carefully because apparently the door is also steaming hot at this point. Yeah. Hissing and like he's handling a hot potato. Exactly. All that yeah. ah, ooh, ah, and ee, and we see ah, even when he closes ah, the door, he's he's doing the same thing. And then Dell gotta get some fabric over yeah. his hand. And then Dell, who always looks on the bright side of everything, says, "Well, one good thing about it, with all this fresh air, we're gonna sleep like babies." Now, now I think this might be the most amazing bright side take I've ever yeah, heard in my completely. life. <laughs> They're in a convertible in winter in Illinois. I mean, a quote-unquote convertible. Yeah. They have no. Well, roof. it is a convertible. Uh, the, a not, the, it is, the, yeah. the town and country and the farming country are both convertible. So, yes. Mm -hmm. They just found a new way to open the top. <laughs> but, yeah, his, uh, his, his take. His take yes. This is now, his, his phrase, what he says here really startled me because I'm like, what does that mean? Fresh air, they're going to sleep better because of fresh air. So, I actually did research and I found that that is true okay sure. i never knew that 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 if you go on a big old hike right, or something to, then, uh, you know yeah. that it, it's it's uh it lowers risks of people developing allergies and contracting diseases if you have more fresh air before you go to go to sleep it will increase your oxygen adjacent oxygenation levels and overall sleep quality 
right? And it also helps you wake up less mm -hmm. during the night. So, you know, people yeah. are supposed, you know, according to this article that I read, it makes sense for you to, you know, go take a little uh, walk around nature before you go to bed. I remember, um, I would imagine anyway, whenever you, you hear of kids that were sickly, right, that they were, they were, you know, whatever, had those, you know, turn of the century diseases, like, you know, five-year-olds getting mm -hmm. pleurisy or, or uh, emphysema or whatever, they'd be right. shipped off to the country, Correct. to their, their, their aunt's cottage by the seaside, just so they could right. get some fresh air and be out of the industrial The same place where, where, you send, where they used to send the dogs, you know, when they were getting old, you know, <laughs> to Aunt Bessie's farm. That's right. A beautiful <laughs> farm. So we're going to send little, little uh, Johnny to, to that farm and he'll be able to, to go, go spend time with, with the dogs. <laughs> that's right. And so, yeah, I, I, I thought that's great because I, I never even noticed that he mentions this before. And, and Neil just doesn't even pay him any attention and keeps walking. You know, doesn't, doesn't even care. Yeah, Neil's, Neil's got the thousand yeah. yard stare at this point. He's like, I don't care. I don't care. Exactly. He has no patience for Dell at this point. You know, and then we no. we they, we get a shot of the the seats of the car, which you can see are completely melted, and there's like and smoldering. You know, we, we have like all this steam coming off of it, or smoke, or whatever. Yes. Not comfortable. And you know, I think this must be the chemical they put on pizzas in commercials to make them steam. It's very toxic, but it looks really authentic. I know that when you're when you're doing a commercial for pizza. Um, you got to open up the pizza and the steam coming off it. And the family's like, Ooh, and then they, they go in to take a bite and they're like cut. And they got to throw that pizza out because they <laughs> doused it in this really poisonous chemical, but it, it gives off a, a beautiful fake steam that looks exactly <laughs> like nice hot steam rising. So they must've just coated these skeleton metal skeleton chairs uh, in that wow. chemical to make All right. steam for this shot. <laughs> so then we get an internal shot of the motel office. And the thing that, that, that the first thing that jumped out at me is, is that they're in, in the sign, they have a sign, you know, we see from the, the view of the, the clerk, there's a sign that says uh, certificate of a superior motel. Okay. Now what, what I found really funny is, is that's facing inwards and not outwards. Okay. You know, it's not something that anyone who's going to come is going to be able to see. It's, it's for, yeah. you know, the, the clerk to to reassure himself, I guess. It's something for the clerk to remember, yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I did look, and it does say on it the El Rancho. So they, they got that. It's it's nice that they added that in there. You know, we had that little, the real detail that when they printed this out, they added the name of, of the El Rancho on there. Nice. And we, we see a few little items on on the counter we see a, a pen with a chain we see a knuckle buster which we talked about a few weeks ago you know the the, the credit card machine yeah uh there's also a rotary phone there so the pen with a chain i, I decided to, to check that up a little bit uh -huh. you know I, I, i've seen it so many times but I, I was just wondering what when it originally when it originated right so it's actually called a counter pen oh okay it's a pen that was designed to be affixed to the counter or table of an institution such as a bank or a post office. That's right. Typically by chain, ball chain, or plastic cord, making it less likely that the pen will be accidentally or purposefully removed. Mm -hmm. Okay. In a 
1938 issue of the Bankers Monthly. Okay, they described the concept and they said the pen also gives a better right than the ordinary counter pen. The ink stand cannot be stolen for it is fastened to the counter or desks. Besides, uh, besides a chain, be uh, a chain between pen and stand prevents anyone from wandering away with the pen. I remember. So, I, I I would imagine inkstand is just uh, an apocryphal uh, apocryphal name because I, I I did not see chains and pens. I've never seen a chain and a pen used with an actual old school inkwell pen. Right. Right. I've only ever or seen feather. This, or feather or feather or a quill. <laughs> A quill for the in an ink pot chained to the ink pot, which is in turn fastened to the counter. Although maybe maybe it did used to be like that because you've needed to use pens and banks since uh, time immemorial. So uh, maybe they yeah. did have a literal be. ink pots or inkwells at some point. Yeah, and then we get a shot of the clerk. Now I'm I do have a pen did... story. Do you want a pen oh, story? Sure, why not? <laughs> There's uh, when. Um, uh oh jeez in uh a few good men yes the G kevin pollock ah okay it's kevin pollock's first film he's there with tom cruise and he sees tom cruise making notes in his script and tom cruise is writing with a hilariously huge pen a massive massive pen and uh so he's like you know, wanting to ingratiate himself. So he's ribbing Tom Cruise about it. And like, Hey, couldn't you, uh, couldn't you get the large pen? You know, like all, all this kind of stuff. And then uh, Tom Cruise says, well, actually this is a, this is an amazing pen. This is a very limited edition, expensive pen. And it's uh $500. So it's a $500 pen. And, you know, Kevin Pollock's like, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. And Tom Cruise is like, write with it here, write with it. And so Kevin Pollock takes the pen and he, he has almost like a spiritual experience when he's like writing with this pen, that the, the flow of it, this, the, the smooth motion of it, the weight of it in his hand. He's like, this is the most amazing writing experience I've ever had in my life. And, uh, and Tom Cruise is like, see, I told you. And he was just using it to make notes in his script. So he said, Hey, I take it all back. That's an amazing pen. That's incredible. And so that night there's a knock on his dressing room door. And this orderly comes in and says, this is from Tom Cruise and gives it to Kevin Pollack and he opens it up and it's one of those pens. And they make these pens in like one place in Paris, right? Like this is a, an amazing, you know, pen. And so he's like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Says to Tom Cruise the next day, thank you so much. And the day after that, a couple of days go by and Tom Cruise comes up to him and says, so, I mean, I bought you this pen, but I don't see you using it. And he's like, I can't, I can't, I can't use the pen. That's a $500 pen. I'm going to put this on a mantle, on, on, on my mantelpiece. And when people ask me, why is there a weird pen on your mantelpiece? I could tell them this solid gold story of how I got it from Tom Cruise. Well, I can't use it, especially just to like make notes in my script on set. That's something that I use a, you know, a five cent bic for. I would never do that with it. And I, no way, I can't. That's way too expensive. That's not something I'm used to just using in such a casual way. Wow. And Tom Cruise was like hurt. He was like, oh, well, okay. Okay. And then that night there's another knock on Kevin Pollock's door and there's a different PA there and he's saying this is from Tom Cruise and he Tom Cruise has given him another copy of a, the $500 pen 
So he's like, okay, you can keep that one for show, but use this one on set to make notes in your script. Well, so I guess it's nice like to have money. You know, yeah. two pens <laughs> for $1,000 as a gift from Tom Cruise. And they are like the best pens in the world. Anyway, nice to have money. Sure. All right. That, that's a very interesting story. Thank you. <laughs> so then we get a shot of the clerk and we get to finally see who the clerk is. The clerk is played Yay. by Martin Ferrero. Martin Ferrero. Born in 1947. He has 30 TV credits, including 23 episodes of Miami Vice. Now, I, I've seen episodes of Miami Vice, but I don't recall seeing him on there. What? 23? He must have been a, a an informant or something or, or a, you know, some colorful street character that they talk to you now and again. Yes. 23 episodes? Huh. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. And, but, I mean, I know him from his movie work. So he has only 17 movie credits. All right. One of them obviously being this movie. And he's also in Get Shorty, Gods and Monsters. He plays uh, George Cooker mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in uh, Gods and Monsters. And his most famous role is in Jurassic Park. That's right. The blood-sucking lawyer. Yeah, so. Right, so uh, back to what we were saying in Miami Vice, he played two different characters. He played a guy named Izzy Marino and Trini DeSoto. Those are the two characters that he played... <laughs> Easy Marino and Trini DeSoto. Of course Izzy, he played Izzy, a character called Izzy, Izzy Marini. Oh, my gosh. Izzy, Izzy. Oh, oh, Izzy. Sorry. Okay. That's like in uh, in Blow when um, Pee Wee yeah. Herman played that character called Derek For Real. I was like, oh, oh just gold, gold. I love, a, I love a good nickname of a of a CD character. You know, you know, right. So he, played, so he played Trini DeSoto in one episode and then played uh, Izzy Marino in the... 22 other episodes. So, yeah. Uh, known for his wild ad libs and humor injected rants, he became a stalwart on the show of Miami. <laughs> yeah. Could be. Could be. I love, I love this guy. I love this guy. He's so much. I always get him mixed up with um, John Cazale. Ah, okay. I can, I can you see know, that. Yeah. You know, God, that. I'm smart. Not like people said, you know, the, 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 that, astounding career of John Cassale, who starred in four movies that were all nominated for Best Picture, yes. and he was married to Meryl Streep, and then he died. I'm like, yeah. dude, holy moly, talk about hitting it and quitting it. You just, it's all killer, <laughs> no filler, and then you just checked out. Amazing. Yeah. So, so he looks, looks similar to Martin Ferrero here. Yes, that's true. So basically then Neil says to him, I need one room. And then Dell goes, look, if you're pissed at me, maybe we should get separate rooms. <laughs> And then Neil turns to him and goes, "You get your own room." <laughs> yeah, like yeah, make no I've mistake. A, I've had enough of you. Rooms. You you yeah, get your own room is, at this point. Do not be assuming that we're getting one room together. That's right. Away. And then the clerk says, "I need a major credit card." And Neil goes, "All right." And then he he takes out his, his wallet and starts taking out uh, steaming pieces of of plastic. And he goes, "Oh, I have a diners, and I have a Visa." <laughs> and still a smoking card. Now, obviously, this is all completely impossible because, first of all, his wallet is not singed. Okay, and how did right. he put yeah. these cards in the wallet and close the wallet? 
you know, they're, if they're if they're that steaming hot and stuff like that. I mean, it works. The comedy works here. There's no question about that. Comedy works great. Blackened, yeah. shrunken, charcoal version of these of these yeah. uh, credit cards. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, the, the 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 then the clerk just looks at it and and you know, first of all, I love the fact that he's in his robe and pajamas. You know, it's like. <laughs> Which I yeah. I've had that experience. I went to I went to Spokane to stay at a motel with my dad and my brother, and the guy that answered the desk. And I remember it being like nine in the morning or something. It wasn't like six in the morning, but he came out in his bathrobe and his hair was just wild. He had obviously just come out of bed to answer the front desk, and uh, I just remember that like, yeah. what kind of hotel Absolutely. is this? Jeez. And yeah. and then he says to Neil, "Well, these aren't credit cards." <laughs> I, I love his creeping smile here. Like he's yeah. on candid camera. Like he's stayed in the obvious to the clearly insane person. Like yes. we're all friends here. Like he, these aren't credit cards. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's so good. Oh, and what's the, uh, the gasoline card? Yeah. Oil Co. Yeah. Did, did you look that up? Is that a fictional card? Yeah, it's a fictional one? card. Yeah. I would yeah, imagine. Completely. Then Neil says, all right, I'll pay cash. And that's the way this minute actually ends. Now, I mean, we'll get into this a little more tomorrow, but how does he have cash? You know, he I would assume that his cash would have been in his wallet and would have also been burned up. Uh, it was in a sock. It what? All right. He got uh, uh, an emergency backup $50 in each sock. Well, we'll, we'll see tomorrow how much money he actually has. <laughs> He's got, yeah, we see yeah. how much he has left of right. the emergency backup sock money that he has. That is true. No, you're right. I don't, I don't know where the, how the cash could possibly yeah. have survived if he's uh, maybe he just had some loose could bills be. in his pocket on his person. Well, apparently that 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 is the simple explanation. Houdini dying like that, though, I think is pretty cheap. That reminds me of um, uh, like the Steve Irwin yes. getting killed by the stingray. You know, like you're like, what? <laughs> no, really? No. You want it to be like a, yeah. a big finish for somebody who's got a career like that. So you want, you know, Houdini to die while jumping from the Empire State Building trying to get out of a straitjacket or something. Just getting punched in the yeah. stomach seems really <laughs> too bad. Right. So the, the discrepancies in the script, there's there's a few here. So one of them is, is uh, first of all, I love the description of Neil. It says Neil walks into the motel. He looks like an Alaskan bag person. What? Okay. Yeah. And then most most of the the conversation goes the same way here, and you know there's a difference again between American Express and diners. Doesn't really make a difference. And then he in right. in the script he actually has three credit cards and doesn't have a gasoline card. You know he has uh, he has American Express, Mastercard, and Visa, and those are basically the same uh, things. And then Neil. After the clerk says those aren't credit cards, he goes, "They were. We had a small fire in the car, and they melted." I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll pay cash. <laughs> so again, there there's small little discrepancies, but but they say a lot. And I've said this numerous times, but I love the editing of this movie because they're able to cut these. They're able to cut out parts of sentences, and things still make sense. Yeah. Yeah. When I had heard that they had cut like 90 minutes out of the original film and I was like, 
it still makes any kind of sense. Like I know there's still some discrepancies with um, yes, some lines yes. that the wife says the beer. or something, or the and way the, she the reacts with the beer. To it. And there, there's a few things. Yeah. But, so, but they they did a very good job of the way that they cut it. Yeah. By and large, yeah, it's all very, very, uh, it's all very legible, and it still makes a lot of sense, which is yeah, like for sure. testament to no the question editor, about that. For sure. So every Wednesday we do a top five called Hughes Hump Day. Where my my guests will will give their nice. top five John Hughes movies. So once again, starting from number five and work Wonderful. your way up. Number five is she's having a baby with uh, good old Kevin Bacon there. That's a, that's a wonderful, wonderful film with a really excellent use of the Kate Bush song, This Woman's Work, when he's rushing to the delivery room um, at the at the climax of the film. It's a fantastic film. Uh, number four would be another John Candy favorite, Uncle Buck, the cl- the classic Uncle Buck. I could, uh, it's not a, well, sort of like an axe. The hatchet is sort of like an axe. <laughs> I could circumcise a gnat with this person, you know, with this, with this instrument here. Wait, well, you're not a gnat, are you, Bug? <laughs> oh, wait a second, Bug, gnat. <laughs> I'm seeing a similarity there, aren't you? Fantastic. Great lines, too, like when the older uh, sister says, we need men so they can grow up, <laughs> get married, and turn into shadows. Great line. Great line. And uh, I also love the, the interchange you between get a lot of Macaulay Culkin when they're asking each other like 50 questions or whatever. It's, it's just <laughs> classic, 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 um, classic film. And then Roseanne's sister from the TV show, Roseanne, she's like the neighbor, the, the sassy neighbor. Good bits. Uh, number three, Weird Science, um, which has not aged well, but which was one of my favorite, favorite movies at the time when uh, when it came out. And there's a great moment in it where they're they're leaving their uh, Wyatt's parents' <laughs> bedroom, I think, and they're wearing adult clothes because they're supposed to go to the bar with the woman they've created. And she's given them fake ID to make them both 21. And they come out wearing like their parents' outdated clothes and then she uh you know twitches her nose and gives them cool 80s clothes and there's this weird thing where i remember when i watched it for the first time they came out in dorky clothes and got uh changed into wearing really super cool clothes from 1985 or 86 or whatever (laughs) but now when i watched it i'm like they come out looking amazing wearing this really cool vintage suits And then they get turned into these weird, blocky, dated 80s garbage suits. (laughs) It's like, oh, it's so weird. That scene changed incredibly over over time. But there's a bunch of scenes that didn't uh, age well. Yeah, and maybe conceptually it it didn't age well at the time anyway. But um, it's all down to Kelly LeBrock. She she saves the film from being completely, uh, you know, misogynistic nonsense or whatever. Uh, And then, um, and of course, the amazing Bill Paxton. For Christ's sakes, will you cover yourself? Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. Uh, all right, so number two, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Still still a timeless classic. Still some really good advice in there. Still a really good, really touching, beautiful movie. And I remember when I saw it when I was 16, I liked it because the teens weren't like movie teens. Like a lot of the teens that I had seen in movies like were like Porky's yeah. or, uh, or, or something where they were just – you know, I don't know, horny shenanigans ensuing, or they were just, uh, 
you know, it's like when you see kids in right. movies, you know, and they, they talk like they are speaking lines that were written for them by an adult. They're not, they're not children. They're weird, like virtual reality constructs. They're not, uh, they're not actually children. So when you see a, a kid in a movie that's actually yeah. acting like a child, you're like, wow, this is really cool. They managed to capture something true here. And it was the same with the, the teens in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where I was like, they're like having adult emotions. They're going through things and they're considering big questions. And when they have their day off, uh, you know, they're not trying to sneak into a sorority and look at boobies. They go to the museum. They go to the art yeah. museum. You know, they go to, they, they have lunch at a nice restaurant. They like, they do things that are just like, finally yeah. teens are doing, um, you know, kind of human cool things of like depth and layer and character. So, uh, I, I like that. And then of course, number one would be breakfast club for a lot of the same reasons where, um, the, there, there's these nuanced, deep performances that are given in the five archetypes that are presented there. And I just <laughs> love John Hughes's way of show. Don't tell like when all the kids are getting dropped off, you know, like the way they interact with the parents, Bender just walks right in front of a car. She doesn't need to. Like stop suddenly. Um, you know, and they're all just, and I love that uh, Ali Sheedy's character doesn't say anything for like the first third of the movie. <laughs> right. And then, uh, yeah, Molly Ringwald, Molly Ringwald says, yeah, my parents, you know, they use me to get back and yeah. to, 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 to hurt each other. I think I'm just a pawn in their game. And then from the back of the room, you hear Ali Sheedy go, ha! And everybody turns like, Oh, like the chair just talked or something. They're like, what? I forgot you were here. Like, what? That's just amazing. I don't really care for the fate no. of her character in that movie and the bit where they like all smoke weed and it's this great equalizer. Not really my bag either, but there's so many parts of the movie that really work. And as far as I've been able to tell, some of the high school teachers that I know, they say that the film still resonates, even with its lack of cell phones or whatever and it's datedness that still teens can watch it today and go oh man awesome super true very funny or whatever so that's good to hear wow all right excellent so every day we have a segment called off the beaten track where either myself or my guests will give a little story about an adventure or misadventure that one of us might have had over the course of life so you got another one for a second i do indeed and this is a very john hughes moment uh which i could actually hear the down down <laughs> happening in my head well, I was uh, I'd done a thing down here called the Symphony Under the Crane there's this giant crane on a small part of Vancouver called Granville Island where there's a lot of tourist shops and a giant open air market it's a, it's a real place for a lot of people to go but there's also a, a small community of houseboats that are all uh, tied to the pier there so there's these people that have been living in houseboats there like two or three story houseboats not just like you know, these are floating floating houses, really. And um, so they had this symphony under the crane. There's this giant construction crane that's still there that I don't think is actually used anymore, but it's still there. So one summer night, they had the Vancouver Symphony underneath the crane, and they had all these tables set up in the open air to do a, an open air orchestra concert for the people. And I was hired to be security for the houseboats. I just had to walk around the houseboats and make sure that nobody was sneaking off to break into one of the houseboats or something like that. So I'm wearing a white shirt and black pants because I have to look professional. So the concert ends and I'm walking back 
and there's a few tips on the tables and there's no wait staff. They're long gone. So I was like, okay, yoink, had to, had to get me like $5 or something off of that. But I'm, I'm walking, um, there's a couple of fancy restaurants down there for the, for the rich tourists. So I'm walking by this one fancy restaurant and this guy gets out of his brand new candy apple red 911 Porsche, <laughs> uh, with his, you know, wife who's like 20 years younger than him, his, his hot trophy wife. And he, he looks at me and he goes, Hey, he gives me a little whistle and then uh, throws me the keys to his Porsche and walks into the restaurant. Hey, five bucks in a Porsche. Why not? <laughs> right. He, <laughs> he assumed I was uh, a valet because I had a white shirt and black pants. And he assumed this place had valet parking. And, uh, I wish I could say that there was some legendary conclusion, but um, I, I didn't have my license. I, I didn't know anything how to drive a car, let alone a standard. So I, uh, I just chased him down and said, hey, buddy, um, I'm, I'm not LA. With, I don't think this place has valet cars uh, <laughs> parking. Here's your, here's your keys back. And he went white. He was just like, <gasps> like when he realized that I could have just hopped in the car and had a, a fun little joyride adventure with his Porsche. Oh, come on, it's didn't. Canada. You, you so, know that's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I suppose not. All right, excellent. Thank you. Great story. All right, you want to once again tell people how they can get in touch with you? Uh, Tronologically speaking, look up Duncan Shields on YouTube. Go buy Small Windows, my book, and uh, just take a look for Buy Duncan Shields on Instagram and Twitter, and um, I'll talk to you there. All right. And finding me is very simple also. Just do a quick search for Movie Rob Minute. You can find me on Facebook, on Twitter, or go to our website. So until tomorrow, you're fine. You're fine.